If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, either in print or even on your phone, I encourage you to open it. We will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Momentarily forgot my place here. many bookmarks in this Bible, and it's been bookmarked for me before I started. I appreciate that. All right, there we go. So while you're turning there, you're probably already there as well. Before we dive into our sermon this morning in Ecclesiastes, you probably have not heard many sermons on Ecclesiastes, so I want to just give a brief overview of Ecclesiastes as a whole. When I study Ecclesiastes, I see three major themes that run throughout the book. Now, I know there's some of you out there who are waiting for your three points. Now, you will have your three points, I promise you. They're not, these are not three points. These are just three things that I see in Ecclesiastes. First, time marches onward and life is short. Two, we all are going to die someday. That's a bit of a downer. Glad we had Ken come to preach this morning. And three, life has a random nature to it. At least from our point of view, we can't control anything in our lives. These three themes given by the preacher in Ecclesiastes lead him to surmise that humans should enjoy their lives. We should enjoy the simple things in our lives. Say, dinner with your family a meaningful conversation with a friend, or even just taking a walk in this beautiful nature we have. Brothers and sisters, there's no snow yet. It is beautiful out there. I encourage you to enjoy the creation. Now, the goal of Ecclesiastes is not to make you lose hope, as you may read it and see it's a bit of a downer. It's really not. The preacher in Ecclesiastes wants the reader to find themselves humble before their holy God. Now, the last thing I want to talk about briefly before we get into our sermon this morning is the Hebrew word hevel. Now, this word is throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used many times. The ESV translates it as vanity. The NIV translates it as meaningless. And the NASB translates it as futility. Now, sadly, all of our modern translations have actually gotten away from what the word Means The word actually means smoke or vapor. Now, you may be thinking, well, why don't our Bibles translate this correctly? Well, they're trying to save you some time. You see, the preacher is using the word hevel, smoke or vapor, to paint you a picture of somebody trying to grasp smoke. If you've ever tried to grasp smoke in your hand, you can't do it. It's vain. It's fleeting. It's meaningless. So every time the writer uses the word hevel or vanity or meaningless, you are trying to be drawn towards a picture of someone trying to grasp something they can't grasp. All right, you've had plenty of time to open to Ecclesiastes. So before I read from God's holy and inerrant word, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly King, Almighty God and Father, we worship you and we give you thanks. We praise you for your glory. Grant to us this day a willing spirit to hear your word. 
May your gospel go forth to us that we may go forth to an unbelieving world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. You may not know it, but I am a pretty good salesman. In college, I sold knives in order to make ends meet. I'll tell you this, a good knife is worth its weight in gold if you're using it constantly. The knives I sold were not cheap, but they were the best knives money could buy. And to this day, 11 years later, they are still the best knives. Even one of them, I've not even had to sharpen. Now, when you're selling knives, it all begins with the approach. Selling knives is not like selling a car. The car kind of sells itself. Selling a knives, you must put on a show for the customer. You must be able to show what these knives can do. Now, for example, the paring knife that I sold, I was able to cut a grape into 22 slices. But it takes practice to do something like that. And I remember many cuts on these fingers as I was practicing for my pitches. Approaching a customer is different than approaching God. In chapter 5, we see the preacher of Ecclesiastes is giving advice on how we are to approach God. We must approach God with fear and trembling. Not because we are afraid of God, but because God is the master of the universe. He is Lord over all. Our theme today is this, the worship of God is our highest duty. And we'll discuss this theme in three points. Guard your steps, guard your mouth, and guard your heart. If you're the kind of person that takes notes, there is a section in your bulletin for you to take notes with those points. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near is to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. God is holy. God is awesome. God is an all-consuming fire. God is holy. We are not holy. We are not awesome. We are not an all-consuming fire. We are not holy. When we approach a holy God, we must humble ourselves before God. Brethren, I love to talk. I love to be talking. Sometimes I don't want to keep silent. You can ask my wife, Thankfully, when we read this verse, this verse is not talking about 
All who speak a lot are fools. What it is being said here is that it is better to approach God with humbleness and silence than to approach God trying to please Him with all that we can say and all that we can offer. God knows who we are. God knows what we are. He created us by the work of His hands. There is nothing we can offer God that He doesn't already have. And so when we approach Him, we must do so in a reverent way. One commentator surmises that guard your steps actually means approach with reverence. Oh, Christian, I caution you to guard your steps as you approach the Lord your God. And do not do so flippantly. For when we approach God flippantly, we are robbing Him of the reverence and honor that is due to Him. One of the main ways we approach God flippantly is by coming before Him with unrepentant sin. Isaiah 1, 13, 16, and 17. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God is telling people in Isaiah's day that he doesn't want their sacrifices He wants them to stop giving in to sin. And we see this principle echoed in Psalm 51, right? The message is the same for us. Brothers and sisters, we need to actively and consciously fight our sin. And we for sure cannot come before a holy God with unrepentant sin on the Lord's Day especially. Now, unrepentant sin is sin that you're engaging in, that you're not fighting, nor are you really sorry that you're doing it. Being a sinner and living in unrepentant sin, these are two different things. We are all sinners on this side of eternity. That will not change. We won't be rid of that curse. But that doesn't mean that we can't fight our sin. That doesn't mean that we can't work to rid sin from our lives. Because of Christ, we can Now, this may get me into trouble. If it does, I'm sorry. Well, not really. But there is a song on the Christian radio station that you may have heard, and if it's one of your favorites, I'm not sorry that I'm about to say this, but this song is called The Father's House. And now, not my father's house. That's a song from the 90s by Audio Adrenaline. Great song. But this song is called The Father's House. It has a line in it, That is quite disturbing. As I was listening to this song that came on the radio, the first verse actually, I was okay. This is this is this is good, but we got to this line, and it ruined it for me. So I'm going to ruin it for you. Here it is: You never wanted me perfect. You only wanted my heart. That's wrong. That is not true. That is not the gospel. That is the complete opposite of what the gospel is. God requires perfection. God demands perfection. Because God demands perfection, we fall short. We all miss the mark that God requires us to hit. 
But it is because of Jesus Christ that when the Father looks at us, instead of seeing our sin, our blemishes, He sees Christ's perfect righteousness instead. That's the Gospel. It's because of Christ's work that we are saved. Yes, God does want a broken and contrite heart. He doesn't want your sacrifices. But He never dismisses His standard of perfection. Christ coming on the scene does not negate the law. When Christ comes, we don't throw out the Ten Commandments. In fact, Jesus fulfills the law and then He makes it harder. He says, you may not have killed your brother with a knife. He doesn't say that. But you may not have killed the brother with a knife. But if you've hated him in your heart, you have murdered him. We will be imperfect in this life. And God never dismisses his standard of perfection. But because of Christ's perfect obedience, where we could not keep the law, Christ kept it to the letter. Because of Christ's perfect obedience, we can do battle with our sin. We cannot be sinless, but we can sin less. When we come before the Lord, we must be right before God in the sense that we've confessed our sins. That we have repented of what we've done. How can one worship the Lord with unrepentant sin hanging over their heads? We must guard our steps as we approach the Lord. As Isaiah has put it, we must wash ourselves, make ourselves clean, and remove the evil from our deeds. Because of the worship of our God being our highest duty, we must approach Him with reverence. As well as approaching Him with reverence and guarding our steps, we must also guard our hearts. It is imperative that we Christians guard our mouths. Did I say heart? I think I meant mouth. I'm sorry. It is imperative that we Christians guard our mouths. Now, you may be thinking to yourselves, the mouth should be sec- shouldn't be second, right? Because we start with the heart, right? Out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You are correct. That is true. But rather than begin with the heart, we begin with the feet and what people see as we approach God. And now we get to the mouth and what people hear as we approach God. We're going to go from the outside in. Verse 2 and 3, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. Brethren, our mouths often get us into trouble. I'm sure all of you in this room can think back to a time in your lives where you thought these exact words. You may have said them out loud. Why did I open my big mouth? Now, my mouth is big, but that's, that's not what we mean, right? We mean, why did we say what we shouldn't have? Why did I say this to my spouse? Now they are mad at me. Why did I say this to my best friend? Now they won't talk to me. Why did I blab that thing someone told me in confidence? Our mouths, whether intended or not, often get us into trouble. What the preacher is saying in Ecclesiastes is that we must guard our mouths. We must not say more than we should before the Lord. 
and that we must be careful about what we say. An old proverb a friend of mine likes to quote is that a stroke of the pen is like a stroke of the sword. It cannot be taken back. What comes out of our mouths cannot be reeled back in. It's out there. It's been said. Now, we get a New Testament parallel with this verse in Ecclesiastes found in Luke 18, verse 11 through 13. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When we approach the Lord, we must guard our mouths as well as our steps, because we are coming before a holy God, a God who knows what we think, a God who sees the depths of our hearts, yet loves us the same. Before the Lord... All excuses are stripped away. Anything you could say to justify yourself before God will not work. Now, if you're wondering how we are to pray, modeling your prayers after the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is always a very wise thing. The writer, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, then pivots and starts talking to us about vows. Verses 4-6, through six, when you vow a vow to God, Do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. God hears what we say. Now I have a question for you. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? I remember as a kid, I did this all the time. God, if you would just get rid of this sickness I have, I'll read the Bible more, I promise. God, if you will help me get a good hit to bring the runner in from third, I promise I'll do more service projects around the church. I was in a high school church softball league. It was very cutthroat. Have you ever tried to bribe God? God, if you answer my prayer, I'll give more money to X cause. I'll I'll give more money to this ministry if you would just answer my prayer in the way that I want you to. Both bargaining with God and trying to bribe God are not good ideas. God is master over the universe and everything. There is nothing any of us have that can entice God to be nice to us. Instead, It is in God's loving mercy and kindness that he treats us as his children, that he treats us as adopted sons and daughters in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the preacher warns us to be careful not to make a vow that we have no intention of keeping, but he also warns us not to make a vow and delay in keeping that vow. Now, why does he say this? Because words matter. What we say matters. Words can build a person up. It can tear them down as well. And remember, when we utter a word, it cannot be reeled back in. When we utter a word before the Lord, it cannot be taken back. If we look to the New Testament, to what Jesus tells us about vows, we can read in Matthew 5, 33-37, what he says. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, 
You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a great city of a king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more from this comes evil. There you have it. Don't make vows. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is very clear, and Jesus is very clear. Don't make vows. But we do make vows, don't we? Right? When you join a Reformed church, you come before the congregation, and you make vows of membership. Right? When you give your life to Christ, you make profession of faith, you make vows to God. When we go to marriage, right? In a marriage ceremony, there are vows being said. Ecclesiastes says, don't make vows. Jesus says, don't make vows, but yet we make vows. So what must we do then? Well, we can see that in the wisdom of Christ, he means when you make a vow, mean what you say. Do not make a vow lightly. If you must make a vow, do so with a sober mind. The ninth commandment still applies to us. If we make a vow, we must Keep it. We need to guard our mouths because sometimes we're tempted to think that words are also the same as deeds. We're tempted to entice God. We're tempted to make high and lofty prayers for others to hear us so that God will like us more. We think that if we use big words that God will be impressed with us and people around us will think we're holier. Now, I'm in seminary. I know a lot of big words. I may not know what they mean, but I know a lot of big words. And even words cannot justify ourselves before God. In fact, I think we should echo the tax collector in Luke. God be merciful to me, a sinner. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote this, In a prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. When praying, we must watch out for hasty words and too many words. We don't want to babble before God, trying to say everything we can to fill the time. Prayer comes from the heart. Out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So while guarding our steps and how we approach God is important and guarding our mouths and what we say is important, the thing of utmost importance, we must guard our hearts. Verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. That's our word, hevel. But God is the one you must fear. Now at first reading, this verse may seem a little odd. But we can understand that the preacher isn't talking about dreams we have when we're sleeping. He's talking about aspirations. He's talking about people who want to not only be great, but be seen as great. Now, for seminarians like myself, it's one thing for us to aspire to be a good pastor. It's another thing to aspire to be the best pastor, to be the pastor with the biggest church or the pastor with the best website, the best following. Sadly, many pastors have been humbled 
after having aspirations like this. It's one thing to aspire to be knowledgeable in a certain field. It's another thing to aspire to know everything. It's one thing to aspire to be a trustworthy employee. It's another to want to be seen and known as the most trustworthy employee. It's one thing to aspire to do well. It's another to aspire to be seen doing well. That's the difference. You see, our hearts, they are idol factories. They will seek to make an idol out of anything they can. Aspirations, fancy words, how others view us and our accomplishments, right? For seminarians like myself, grades, right? Insert anything here, and it won't take long for us to figure out how to make an idol out of it. Here's the crux of the matter. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is writing, looking forward to something he does not understand. He is looking forward to something that's coming, but he doesn't know what it is. And he writes this in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He, that is God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to the end. God has set eternity in our hearts. God has set a longing for something amazing in our hearts, and yet our hearts cannot fathom what that is. Instead, our hearts seek for something to worship. Our hearts are constantly seeking for something to worship. But if it's it's not God, it's going to be something else. The preacher is writing in a time that looks forward to something amazing that he could not understand. But we, we understand what he's looking forward to. We understand what he's writing about. The fight to keep ourselves from idols changes drastically when Christ steps on the scene. When we remember that we have been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ, we can do battle with our sin. We can strive to keep ourselves from idols. And we can win. This is the message to all believers. right? The walk of a Christian is a hard one. You know it. You've fought battles. You've carried burdens. We must keep ourselves from idols. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, because of Christ's work, we can put our sin to death. Brothers and sisters, we must guard our hearts. We have to keep ourselves from wanting to be greater than we are. We have to keep ourselves from wandering into sin. We also have to keep ourselves from coveting the things that others have. I drive a minivan. It's no secret to my friends and family. I would love to have a large truck especially with the winters we have here. I would love to have a large, loud truck. But you know what? I'm content with my minivan. My minivan can haul things like a truck. I can fit an eight-foot board in there. I can fit a 10-foot board in there. I can also fit seven other people, and it's comfortable. I'm happy with my minivan. I can't afford a truck at this point in my life. Maybe someday, we'll see. But here's the secret 
to guarding your heart. Contentment. Contentment is the secret to guarding your heart. When we strive to be content with our lot in life, when we strive to be content with having what we need, we are better able to guard our hearts. You see, Ecclesiastes is a great book of the Bible. And I encourage you to study it as best you can. Because the preacher is constantly telling the reader to be content with your lot in life. Enjoy the simple things. That while time marches onward and we're all going to meet the same end, there is a beautiful, random nature to this life. And God wants us to enjoy it. But we must be careful. We must be vigilant because sin is crouching at our door and it seeks to master us. But when we study God's word and we align our will with God's, right? We, we align our will with God's, not God's will with ours. When we align our will with God's, we can be masters over our sin. We can nail our sin to the cross, making sure it dies a horrible, painful, slow death. Because of Christ, we can win the battle. As we began by discussing from the outside in, I'd like to end this morning by discussing from the inside out. First, guard your heart. Keep yourself from idols and aspirations that are not holy. Guard your mouth. Keep your mouth from saying things you shouldn't. Keep your mouth from trying to justify yourself before God. And guard your steps. Approach the Lord with reverence. Do not go where you should not be. You see, the preacher, in all of his wisdom, takes 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes to hammer everything into one final point. You can read the whole book, and he summarizes it in one point, one verse. 12.13, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For us on this side of the cross, on this side of Christ's death and resurrection, we must remember to fear God and keep His commandments. We can look to the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Catechism for expounding on this thought. First, from the Heidelberg. What is our only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And secondly, from the Westminster, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Brothers and sisters, we belong to the Lord our God. Let us strive to glorify God in all that we do. And remember that one day we will. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You've given us the time to open it this morning. We thank you that we can understand it. Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we read your word and as we go forth to an unbelieving world. As we step out the doors of safety, 
into a world that does not like truth, that does not like your gospel, I pray that you would gird us with truth. As we worship you in spirit and truth here this morning, let us go forth to this world seeking to warm the hearts of the lost. Father, I pray for this church. I ask that you would guide them, that you would sanctify them and prepare them for the mission ahead. Lord, you love us. You love us despite our sin. Where we would be content to sit in the mud puddle, making a castle out of sand. You have plucked us from the muck and the mire and you have clothed us in righteousness for your name's sake. Because of your work and nothing of our own, you've adopted us as sons and daughters. Not just to be part of this gigantic family not known by anybody, but no, as firstborn sons that we would inherit everything and be co-heirs with your son. We thank you that your throne is big. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.